You're listening to Ants Talk. It was 1984 when my next guest was 25 and helping a friend who was going through cancer treatment. On one of these visits, she found herself in a hospital hallway and saw a big red bag over a door. She noticed nurses drawing straws on who would enter that room. This was the days when the disease, which was called GRID, that we now know as AIDS, existed and started. Ruth Coker-Burks is an icon in the gay community, and I couldn't be more thrilled to be interviewing her, interviewing her today. Let me just do that bit again. And I couldn't be more thrilled to be interviewing her today. Please welcome to the show, Ruth. How are you, Ruth? I am great. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm a gay icon. Uh, Oh, please. You are. Well, you are in my eyes, so you're my icon. Well, thank That's all I need. But thank you to the rest of my gay friends out there. I wasn't dissing you. I was just teasing you, Anthony. I know. I know. Now, Ruth, tell us about that day that I just spoke about when you were in that hospital ward and you noticed that red bag. Well, I'm not a very good sit in the room type person, and I'm not a good keep your nose out of other people's business person. So the both of those merged. And, you know, we had been, Bonnie was my friend who had throat and neck cancer when she was 35, and she never smoked or anything. And so we had been up there for five years. She had five reconstructive surgeries and she had them a year apart. So we knew the nurses and they loved us and we loved them. And I would bake cookies and take them up there. And we would all eat out of the same, you know, cookie or biscuit tin. And, you know, we were just good friends. And I used their telephone the whole time and all of that. And so they, I noticed this big red bag had been put all the way across this young man's door. I mean, from top to bottom. And I was, I wanted to ask the nurses what that was, but I walked out of the room and noticed that they were drawing straws to see who would go in and check on this young man. And then they would draw him again and say, oh, that was best three out of four, I want best five out of six or whatever it was. And then they would take that, whatever their last draw was, and they would just pretend like they never did it and go on about down the halls waiting on their patients. And no one ever went in to check on this young man. And his trays had started to end up on the hallway outside the door. And these were, I didn't even know they made styrofoam trays to eat off of, but they were styrofoam trays and styrofoam plates and, you know, plasticware and his bologna sandwich had tumped over or apple juice had tumped over and just, it was all wet and yucky. And they know, and I realized that there were six trays. So that meant that no one had fed him in two days. Wow. And I just couldn't take that anymore. I thought, I don't know where these nurses went, and I don't know why they did this, but I'm going to go in and check on him. I want to see what's going on. Mm. Because my mother was in a tuberculosis sanitarium, and as feared as that was in my childhood of the 60s, whatever that was couldn't be that bad. Yeah. And I have a cousin in Hawaii who's gay, and I asked him about it, and he said, oh, no, honey, that's just the leather guys in San Francisco. 
And I thought, oh, wow, it's not you. Thank God. But I didn't want him to know. I didn't know what a leather guy was. Are you kidding me? And so, you know, when I got back over here, I just kept listening, waiting for something to come on the news. And it hadn't yet. And so when I walked into his room, I thought maybe he was in the restroom because he was so frail and so thin. He weighed less than 75 pounds and he was wrapped up in his bed sheet. So it just looked like a bunch of messy sheets on the bed. And there he was. And I walked over to him and I took his hand and I said, can I get anything for you? Do you, what can I do? And he said he wanted his mama. And I thought, wow, that's easy enough. And so I marched out to get his mother and the nurses said, honey, his mama's not coming. Nobody's coming. And don't you go back in that room. And I thought, wait a minute, we need to call his mother. And they wouldn't give me her phone number. And finally, one of them just kind of shoved it across the desk at me. And I um, went on. I went, you know, and reached for the phone and they pulled it back and they said, the payphone is down the hallway. Wow. I didn't even know there was a payphone there. So they didn't even have a dime for me. And I got some money and I went down the hallway and I called his mother and she hung up on me Mm. and I called her right back. And I said, if you hang up on me one more time, I'll list your son's name and his cause of death in your hometown newspaper. And I had her complete attention. Yeah, I bet. It's crazy. I mean, to think, to think back at that time, it was such a, you know, it wasn't just a scary time for people that were in the community, but so many people feared this disease because it was such a little, like little known. There was so little known about it. I mean, even here, we had one of the scariest ads I think that we've ever produced in Australia. It was it was the Grim Reaper ad, where yes. Grim Reaper basically bowled, you know, peep down like an, a bowling alley and was knocking people off the bowling alley like they were dying. Um, right. And I mean, the weird thing is, is that you know, even what we're facing today with coronavirus, it's a yeah, it's almost like a similar thing, like how you just described that situation it's almost like what's happening right now and it's 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 but the people the people nowadays want to go to the hospitals and they want to see their families but they won't let them yeah yeah but back then they wouldn't come to the hospital you couldn't drag them by police escort to a hospital to see anybody with AIDS. Yeah, it's crazy. What did you know about HIV and AIDS at the time? Was that the only thing was what your um, cousin had spoken The only about? thing I knew is he didn't have it. And that was all I was, I wasn't, I hate to say it, I wasn't worried about anybody else in the world. I just didn't want him to get it. Yeah. And, you know, who knew that it would get to be so huge, you know, it's, uh, you know, that is the way it is with COVID, you know, it started out with a few people and who would ever think it would be this worldwide, you know, as, as it is, but HIV was out of ignorance. It was out of our, our government and the United States, Ronald Reagan, 
it was never mentioned until his second term of office. The word AIDS was never mentioned. Well, if they won't even mention it in a press conference, and then they do with snickle, you know, with uh, giggles and all of that, these grown men giggling, saying, well, I don't have AIDS. Do you have AIDS? They were that flippant in the presidential briefing room. So, you know, no one was getting out there saying, hey, we know what to do. Yeah, exactly. And it w- it stands 100% on Ronald Reagan's shoulders, our president, Ronald Reagan's shoulders. Yeah, definitely. I agree with that. Yeah. The funny thing, too, is back then, um, even when medications first came out, AZT was one of the first ones that was introduced. And yeah. the funny thing is, is that even at that time, because it was so new, they didn't even know how to prescribe it. So they were actually killing people with the AZT. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people don't realize or know that. All it did was turn your fingernails black, but it gave them hope. Mm. My patients would take their AZT the day they died because they knew that day after tomorrow there would be a cure. Wow. Crazy. Absolutely crazy. Now, you're known for helping gay men with AIDS journey through their last days and offer them respect with their burials also. Can you tell us some stories about that? Because I know that you were in, you inherited a, a burial plot. <laughs> well, kind of. My mother and her brother were in this epic battle. And, I mean, this went on before. This is decades old battle they were in. I don't know what it was about, but the meanest thing my mother could think to do to him after he retired and moved back to Arkansas was buy 226 grave spaces, all of the remaining grave spaces in file cemetery to keep him and his family from being buried with the rest of us. Oh my God. And she had her marker put up and it said, Woe beyond ye hypocrites, Pharisees, and scribes. Because she kept saying he was such a hypocrite. He's such a hypocrite. And that's out of the Bible. That's out of first or second Timothy. So, you know, she had good intent. And um, we would go out there every Sunday, and I'm an only child. Mm. And she'd say, someday all of this is going to be yours, while running her ring and crusted fingers across my, you know, in my way. And I thought, well, can I just have one of your rings <laughs> or maybe your watch? Uh. And <clears throat> who knew, who knew that there would come a time mm. where parents did not want their children to bury them, And there was no place to bury them. I went to a cemetery. uh, Up here, we have like little private family cemeteries all over the place. And then we have some that anybody can be buried in. And I went to the man to get a space to bury Jimmy. And he said he never, he had his feet crossed on his desk with his gross old cowboy boots. He never took them off his desk. He said, you don't have one of them. I I hate to use the word, but, 
y'all have reclaimed it. So, I'm, but he said them old queers, mm. and I have a hard time saying that word because I feel like there's a whip cracking at my back. But yeah, yeah. y'all have reclaimed that word and use it proudly, so I don't mind saying it. But you know, it was a very derogatory term back then. Mm. I don't want all them AIDS juices running down in my cemetery and getting in other caskets. The families oh, wouldn't wow. like that. Well, what are they going to do? <laughs> Dig them up and check their caskets? But it wasn't transmissible. And this was just a canister of cremated remain, human yeah, remains. Yeah. And so, but I had told him that when he was dying and that I knew of a beautiful little cemetery and that my daddy was there and I'd, I'd put him there and daddy would tell him whose cars were passing by and who that was and just to make it sound like a, you know, a pretty cool place to go. Yeah. And yeah. so that's where I ended up burying Jimmy. Oh, that's so beautiful. And I buried him and I thought, well, that's it. I'm done. I did my good deed for a lifetime. I just go back to my regular life, not knowing that that was going to be my regular life because then the phone calls just started coming and coming and they never stopped for a decade. It's incredible. Absolutely incredible. Do you, do you realize the impact that you've had on people's lives because of what you did? No, I really don't. I really don't. I just did what any decent human being should have done, but they didn't do it. And I still can't come to grips with the fact that no one else was doing anything. Mm. I think that's the thing. It really, it always just takes that one person to um, show that compassion and to, you know, basically change, even though this was at the end of their lives, it still changed their lives. Um, and, yeah. you know, it gave them the blessing of ending their lives on a positive note rather than... They did know that they were loved That's when they it. died. Exactly. I was there. I told them that. I said, do you understand me that I love you and I will be here with you until the end? And they all knew it. Mm, so beautiful. They all knew it. That was the one thing that really but Jimmy me. thought I, But Jimmy thought when I went back into his room, I thought, what am I going to tell him? And I took his hand that second time and he looked up at me and he said, oh, mama, I knew you'd come. I know you, that was actually what I was just about to ask you about was that moment because that touched me that moment. It was so beautiful that you and I mean, I remember you saying that he you basically just pretended to be his mother and gave him comfort and solace and love and what a what a yeah. beautiful way to for him to think you know yeah. his mother was there i mean more shame on him yeah. really right yeah it's Absolutely. such a blessing to be with someone who's dying i'm not good with babies and little kids but you know I am with it I'm case by case basis. Let's put it that way <laughs> with little kids. But, you know, to be with anybody will rush to the hospital to be there when a baby's born. But when somebody's taking their last breaths on this earth, nobody's running to be there. Nobody wants to see it or be around it. Tune in each week for Anne's Talk to learn about real-life stories, celebrities and everything in between. Was there a significant change that you noticed when AZT was introduced? 
Uh, yes, with my men, of course. Oh, yes. They, uh, you know, it was just crazy because we didn't have anything. You know, I would go back to old cookbooks because they would have recipes in there for things. If you had a cough or a cold yeah, or, yeah. you know, go out and get this plant and that plant. And my grandmother did that down in the Florida Keys. And she was famous for curing people and keeping them alive and all of that. But I knew that going into this, I knew that my part wasn't going to be in keeping them alive. Yeah, It was to give, I wanted them to have the best part of their lives be the last part of their lives. Mm. And um, they were so happy. People were, you know, they couldn't get up off the couch, but they'd go, look, I got my bottle of AZT. And they oh, thought gosh. they were going to live. Yeah. And so I let them think whatever they wanted to think. I didn't, I never lied to them. I was always honest with them, but I was very gently honest with them. And I was honest uh, by omission because I didn't want to lie to them, but sometimes telling them the whole truth wasn't the right thing for them. Yeah. And so um, they just thought it was wonderful. And then they would go, you know, my fingernails are turning black. Is that bad? No, that's great. That means <laughs> that means the AZT is working. And then we had DDI and DD, DDI and DDC wasn't there. DDC. Uh, was it DDT? <laughs> Maybe? No, I, that's I, what they put on plants to oh, kill jungle oh, plants. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, hopefully they weren't using that then. <laughs> Well, you know, who knows? Over here, they're using cattle dewormer. The I people know. who walk, that's in Arkansas. They're giving it to the prisoners I right use, up here I where use I that live. On my, I actually use that on my face because. Um, oh, do you? Yeah. So they use it. Well, I use the medical one that I'm given by a doctor, not a horse paste. But they actually, it's the same same ingredient that we use on our face when we've got rosacea. So yeah, that's what it. they use it yeah. for. So I, that's yeah. why I use it. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, well, they the people who won't take a shot. So what? why do these men and this cause touch you so deeply? Because they were so lovely. They were just, they were human beings, for Christ's sake, you know? that I, I went to school with men that I knew had to be gay. And I saw how they suffered through school and how torturous it was for no reason whatsoever, except they were just a little bit different. Yeah. And, it, you know, I'm different. The jocks that, that picked on them, they were pretty different and special themselves. You know, they weren't the brightest bulb in the tree. <laughs> and here they were picking on my friends. Yeah. And then when I, you know, grew up and I had my daughter and divorced her dad and we were going to church every Sunday, I didn't know that that mindset was all through all of the churches that they, if they're, and the churches are the ones that said it's a gay plague, it's God's punishment for the homosexuals and the homosexual lifestyle. Yeah. And Jerry Faldwell, who was head of the um, Focus on the Family, or anyway, he started one of these big, uh, the 
oh, I can't think of what it was. He's Liberty University. That's what it was. Yeah. And he bought a full page ad and it had a family sitting there with face masks, surgical mask on to keep them from getting that homosexual disease. Now, they won't do it to keep from dying from COVID, but they didn't want to have that homosexual disease. And I, I just couldn't imagine that somebody being gay and then the whole epidemic being blamed on them. Yeah, yeah. Nobody went out and deliberately got it. Nobody knew what it was, where it came from. No one knew anything. And it's just by the grace of God, it wasn't them. Yeah. It, it could have easily. It actually surprised me, even that these days, you will get people that, that talk about it and in such a derogatory way and, and still think it's a gay disease, like even today. And it's right. like, it, it, what annoys me the most is if they actually went and first of all, had an education, but went and actually researched, they would actually realise that that is so untrue, that majority of the people on this planet with HIV are heterosexual people. The second thing is it always then relates back to, and what annoys me again about people's misinterpretations of things is when I hear um, comments like, and always relating homosexuals and pedophilia together. And oh God! I that... always, always correct them. And I go, do you also realise that it's something like ninety-two percent of pedophiles are straight men? Then it goes. We've got the smaller brackets of homosexuals and women, but the majority are oh, straight yeah. men. Yeah, we've got. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Duggars. It's a family of yeah, 20. yeah, yeah. I know them. Okay. Yeah. Well, the oldest son is in jail. Well, he's yeah. out of jail now and going to prison for child pornography. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, uh, y'all are the ones that arrested uh, Peter something. He was a huge pedophile, uh, ran a pedophile ring down in Australia and New yeah, Zealand, yeah. and they caught him in the Philippines. And he did the um, – it. Josh Duggar downloaded a snuff film of an 18-year-old, 18-month-old girl. Oh, my God. A snuff film of that an 18-year-old girl. And if you don't know what that is, go look oh, it up. I you know, know what that is. Yeah. You know, to the, listener, the listeners oh, can look it yeah, up. Yeah, that's it. And, and, you know, they are portrayed as the epitome of the Christian family. Mm-hmm. And they held them, so they had a TV show on for probably 15 years on yeah. Uh, yeah. TLC, showing what a fine Christian family they were. And this is the second time he's been caught doing something like this. He molested his sisters. Yeah. Yeah. And he's supposedly, a, you know, he's a straight man. Gay men want, a, I'm just speaking for gay men, and I've never been in the bedroom while gay men were having sex but don't y'all want experienced partners and not a child exactly exactly that's what i tell everybody i'm I'm attracted to men (laughs) yes exactly exactly Funny, funny enough um here in australia we've got a big church which is called hillsong and oh, I know. our prime minister is one of the biggest fans of that church um yes and 
also Justin Bieber came over and was involved for it in a while because it's, yeah. also, I think they've also got, like, yeah, one's over in uh, LA and stuff. And funny enough, the leader of that church, the original founder was caught the same way. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. It's and his own son, who now runs the church, has just also been charged for concealing his knowledge around all this. It's just right. Oh, it just angers me so much. Absolutely incredible. Yeah, just everything they say is just uh, you know. I've heard it all because I was caught up in being the middleman. I was every the churches hated the gay gay community Mm. back then it was lesbian and gay for the younger uh, listeners it wasn't lgbtq it was just you were lesbian or you were gay and anybody else was not it didn't exist there was no trend and y'all there were trans people but not out in the open it was way far too dangerous and um you know the things that they would say and the church, all their vitriol that they could muster up because they just knew that they were going to give it to the straight people. Well, not unless you have sex with them, you're not. That's it. But, um, you know, they had to towards me. It was kind of like, well, this is how we feel about those blah, blah, blah people that I'm not going to mention the names that they would actually say in church. Mm. And I was supposed to, I guess, take it back to the gay community and tell them how much the straight community hated them. So I was the face of the LGBT community in Arkansas and in the South. And everybody thought that they had an obligation that I needed to hear how they felt about it. Yeah, it's crazy. You ended up helping about a thousand men, around a thousand over 10 years and wow. you know not all i didn't help all of them while they died but you know i got them the house, housing assistance and food stamps and social security disability i got all of that for them and yeah. doctor's appointments and anything i was like their magic genie you just tell me what you need and i will find it for you i love that and i, I would that. go dumpster diving in the trash behind grocery stores because i didn't have enough money to feed everyone yeah, yeah. and they only got 14 dollars a month in food stamps what are you going to oh. buy with that And I had so many men that, you know, they put a lot of good stuff out that is not out of date and it's not spoiled or anything. And so I would go and dig through the dumpsters and then, you know, brush myself off and take (laughs) the stuff home and clean it real good. And I would make pots of soup or whatever I casseroles anything to keep their weight on because back then if they lost weight and they got that weight got started snowballing that weight loss then there was really they didn't live as long yeah definitely was and so it was yeah it was keeping them healthy and keeping the high i mean i would just smack just like a oh two tablespoons of butter well here how about a whole stick (laughs) but that was calories and calories and calories that's it what is something that people don't know about you i don't like heights (laughs) (laughs) we're alike there neither do i (laughs) (laughs) although i did i did conquer that in fiji a little bit 
We went. Oh. Um, we went zip lining, and yeah, it was from quite like quite high up. And even yeah. though I was absolutely crapping myself, I actually did. Oh it. yeah, and I had the oh, good. The, I'd had the most amazing time doing it. It was incredible. Oh, so we'll it was see. good, good to, to sort of face it. <laughs> I'll have to try that sometime. Next time I'm in Fiji, I'll try that. Yeah, well, you can come here and do it. We, we've got. I will do here. that. I yes. will. So you're gonna have to make I, um, plans. Oh, I know. Won't that be fun? I know. Oh my gosh, that would be so much fun. So is there a person that you remember the most? Oh, Billy, of course. Billy was, yeah, no, Billy was mine. He was, Billy was, um, but see, I knew Billy before he, before he knew he was sick. Yeah. And we had a wonderful relationship and we became friends and I, he did the best drag. I mean, he was the most beautiful drag queen I'd ever seen. And he was the most beautiful boy I had ever seen. Wow. And um, yeah, he just took my heart and I, you know, we rode the elephant. We were at the doctor's office for his, to find out that he had HIV. He, there was no diagnosis. He just Mm. had some symptoms. And uh, so I took him over there and I knew what the answer was going to be. And he did too, but he didn't want to know it. No one wants to know it. And so he looked over, we passed the zoo and he goes, oh, look, they're riding an elephant. I've always wanted to ride an elephant. So I spun that car around into a big old U-turn and we went back and had to empty the ashtrays to put pennies and dimes and nickels together to get enough money for us to ride the elephant and to get a picture. Oh, that's so and the nice. picture was $5 and I didn't know how. And so I talked the people at the front entrance of the zoo since we weren't going to be there all day to please let us just go ride the elephant for free because all I had was $5 and they looked at me like, Oh my God. (laughs) And we were riding that elephant and I, I can't draw or paint, but I've had this picture seared into my mind of us on that elephant. And I really want to paint that with watercolors. So I'm teaching myself watercolors. Oh, good on you. That's amazing. I love that idea. Yeah. Now, I know that now you also work as a motivational speaker and have a new book titled All the Young Men. Can you tell us more yes. about that? Well, thank you for asking. All the Young Men, it took two years to write, and I have a fabulous co-writer that I would not have written the book had I not found him. Wow. It, I wouldn't have told this story if I hadn't have found him. Um, it's a, He is a Kevin Carr O'Leary. He's a New York Times bestselling writer and a gay man, and he just got the story. He just got it. I had thousands of manuscripts literally sent to me, and nobody got it, but he did. And he, um, he wrote the book. He wrote the proposal. He was uh, his son was going to sleep and he was laying on the floor and he wrote it on his phone. And it was about me uh, clicking my heels, going down the hall and telegraphing if I was mad or not mad or happy. Everybody knew 
when I was coming down the hall, what was about to happen, <laughs> I was either bringing them cookies or bringing them holy hell. I and so it. they knew that. And, um, they, and so anyway, he just had this, I've had a stroke and I couldn't write it myself and keeping my brain, um, how he ever put, because I'll tell a story a different way. The second time I tell it to you, not remembering I'd already told it to you, but he said, that's like holding up a diamond to him and seeing the light through a different facet. Yeah, yeah. And he said that was very helpful, but it was, you know, I didn't want to die with this. And plus I've had blood clots in both lungs and you name it. And I've had it thrown at me and I did not want to die without this story being told that the AIDS crisis didn't just happen in San Francisco and New York. Mm. It happened in the middle of America. Yeah. It happened in small towns, large towns, in churches, everywhere. Yeah. Because, you know. And if anything, I mean, that's, that's where it was probably at its worst because in, in places like San Fran and New York, you did have that little bit more of acceptance there and, you know, yes. a bit more liberal thinking and stuff like that. So it was that's very where the, challenging. Oh, and when money started becoming available, that's where the money went yeah. because, you know, the testing would be you tested positive is where one number stayed. Then when you came down with we used to call it full-blown AIDS, then that's where your other number stayed. Mm. And they got money for that. But back home where you came from, we didn't get a penny of money. Yeah, it's crazy. And so that's why I wrote the book, All the Young Men, because I wanted people to know that we are the ones who sent those young men to, you know, or forced them to California and forced them to New York to find lives mm. when they were 16 year old runaways because their families and their churches had thrown them out. So bad. And, um, so that's why I decided to tell this story. That's amazing. Did you actually watch the series Pose? Oh, yes. Wasn't that something else? It's just, it's heartbreaking. I literally I saw bawled every episode. Oh, every episode. <laughs> and I saw It's a Sin. Yeah. And, oh. you know, I cried through that. Same. And, it, you know, it's isn't so, it just It's actually so beautiful to see... I mean, something that a lot of people have now forgotten about or it's in the back, you know, the back burners of their minds now where bringing that to, especially bringing it out now and the youth of today being involved and watching it and learning about the realities of what people went through all those years yeah. ago, you know, I mean, I think it's so special. It really is. Yeah. No one knows what it's like. See, there's a film. It's Kevin Costner played in it. It was called Dances with Wolves. Yeah, Have y'all yeah. ever seen yep. it over there? Yeah. And and his character goes out on the Great Plains to resurrect a fort that was out there, and he's has it all ready because the cavalry's coming any day. And he makes friends with a wolf because that's the only companionship he had. And so I found these AIDS patients and I went back to the community and I said, look to the community leaders and doctors. I said, look, we've got AIDS patients here. They're dying. You know, it gives you a great opportunity to treat them and learn about this disease so we can stop it. 
not thinking that they would literally throw charts at me down the hall as they're running me out of their office. Wow. And I thought the cavalry was coming and they didn't come. Mm. There was nobody coming and nobody to help me do anything with these men. And they just, you know, there was just more of them and more of them. And it was just so heartbreaking. Mm. And I was on the finance committee at my church and I was the first woman there. And I was so proud of this position. And we had a million dollar budget in 1985. No church needs a million dollars. But anyway, so I asked the pastor if I could have one room in the breezeway for the uh, for a support group meeting and had all these bankers and all the men of authority in the city was there. And uh, he looked up at me and he said, surely you're not talking about bringing those people into this church, are you? And I bowed my back and I said, oh, no, Dr. Hayes, I'm not talking about bringing those people into this church. I'm talking about walking those people across your new $30,000 lawn we just paid for into your new $300,000 parsonage we just bought for you and sitting them on the $60,000 worth of new furniture the church just bought you. That's what I intend on doing with those people. I love it. He took me off the finance committee. <laughs> Good on yeah. you, though. God, that's brilliant. I love, oh, I love yeah, hearing I stuff know. like that. <laughs> <laughs> so, Ruth, where can people find out more about you? Well, they could buy my book, uh, All the Young Men, and it's out in paperback in the UK now. You can still get it in hardback, and um, then it's on Audible. Fantastic. And I I narrated it myself. Oh, wow. That's brilliant. Maybe I'll have to get that version so I can hear you. Yes, yes. (laughs) That'd be lovely. That would be wonderful. I would definitely do that. Well, Ruth, what can I say? But as I told you before, when I we start before we started the interview, I am just so so happy that you allowed me this time to chat to you. I, I just absolutely bow down to you. And um, if if no one's ever said it to you, let me say it to you now from our community: we love you and we thank you. Thank you so much. I'm so honored to have your love. And this has been a great interview. You are just delightful. You've asked the best questions. (laughs) And you've just been wonderful and delightful. And thank you so much. It's my absolute pleasure, Ruth. And thank you again. And I will speak to you soon. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Ants Talk. It's like Oprah, but not.